Chapter 19 of The Fortune Hunter, a novel of New York Society by Anna Cora Mowat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. The thorns which I have reaped are of the tree I planted. They have torn me, and I bleed. I should have known what fruit would spring from such a seed. Byron. As the clock struck three, on the day succeeding that which had been made memorable by the Clinton visit, Mr. Badger found himself opposite the Bowling Green. His business in that part of the city was not merely to pass judgment upon the fountain or upon the fantastically uncouth heap of stones, to a very creative imagination bearing some slight resemblance to a cluster of rocks, over which the limpid croton reluctantly, with a very visible effort, dashed itself. Yet, although Mr. Badger had affairs of importance to transact, he felt bound, as a patriot, to pause and survey the ingenious handiwork of his countrymen. After he had examined the fountain, in every possible point of view, he stood before it exultantly, rubbing his hands, shaking his head, and occasionally giving way to a solitary ebullition of mirth as he ejaculated, Sublime! Sublime! Great country, this! Great country! His admiration having thus vented itself, Mr. Badger thought it time to proceed to business. Didn't intend to wake up the old woman on Pearl Street today. However, so near there now, better not lose the opportunity. Mordaunt's nearly settled. One more visit, hope to have done with him. Ain't a favorite customer. Growls and shows his teeth like a full-bred Newfoundland. Managed to make the old woman hear. Got a cure for deafness here. Mr. Badger looked tenderly at his stout cane, as though conscious that nobody but himself was aware of its medicinal virtues. He turned quickly into Pearl Street, and stood before Mr. Mordaunt's inhospitable-looking dwelling. To try his strength and test his patience upon the rusty knocker would be but useless trouble. A better mode of gaining admittance suggested itself. An entrance through the basement might easily be accomplished, and to this passage he therefore betook himself. He unceremoniously made his wants known by applying his sturdy walking-stick to the door. He could hear the echoes ring through the deserted house, and they were his only answer. Mr. Badger was of a determined character, and a few obstacles only stimulated his energies. He bravely turned his back to the door, at the distance of a few steps, and permitted himself to fall heavily against it. This feat he repeated until the whole house shook, and the hinges and locks of the old door gave evident symptoms of resisting no longer. It was then that he heard something fall in the kitchen, succeeded by the sound of uneven steps tottering through the entry. "'Be you going to pull the house down?' demanded Tabitha from within, but without making any attempt to draw back the bolts, Mr. Badger, 
probably indisposed to trust his voice, replied by once more dropping his whole weight against the door. "'Lord, have mercy on us! Don't be after doing that again! Who's there?' Mr. Badger answered as before, and this time a hinge gave way. "'Don't! Don't!' screamed the old woman. "'Wait a bit and I'll open the door! Oh, Lord! Oh, Lord!' Mr. Badger was too polite to refuse this request, and the door slowly opened, but only enough to make visible Tabitha's shriveled face. "'How do you do? How are you, your ladyship? Didn't want to give you the trouble to walk all the way up the stairs. House full of smoke. Hey, what's, what's burning?' The old woman had been so much alarmed by Mr. Badger's attempts to make a forcible entrance that she had not noticed the clouds of smoke that were gathering around her. "'Lord, have mercy on our souls!' was all she could say, and forsaking her post, she rushed screaming into the kitchen. "'It's the little furnace upset! I thought the fire was dead out of it! Oh, Lord! Oh, Lord! The house is caught!' Mr. Badger, although thick smoke had now rendered the passage so dark that he could hardly see, led by the sound of Tabitha's shrieks, groped his way into the kitchen. What a scene presented itself! The consuming flames darted up from a large portion of the floor and were savagely climbing up the walls. Tabitha flew, yelling around the kitchen, seizing pails and pitchers and jugs, everything that contained a drop of water, and throwing it wildly upon the burning floor. Mr. Badger caught up the swill pails and hurled their contents over the raging element, but the fire only burned more fiercely, and in a few moments more the terrified couple could with difficulty escape the pursuing flames by flying from the kitchen. "'Fire! Fire! Fire! House on fire!' shouted Mr. Badger, leaping into the street. "'Fire! Fire! Oh, Lord! Oh, Lord! Fire! Fire!' shouted the old woman, snatching her burning cap from her head and frantically pulling her singed gray locks about her face. In a few seconds a crowd assembled, but the house was old and decayed, and a large portion of it was constructed of wood, and before an engine arrived the flames were bursting through the lower windows, and an attempt to enter the house by the basement was impossible.' Several efforts were made to force the street door, but the strength of the bolts within rendered every trial ineffectual. "'No matter, there's not much there worth saving,' called a man from the crowd. "'Old Mordaunt lived alone, and all his furniture wouldn't bring twenty dollars.' "'No such thing! No such thing!' shouted Mr. Badger at the top of his voice. "'There's a lady! Got a lady shut up there!' Oh, profligate, save the lady! Never leave a lady in trouble! Always save the ladies, I say! Save her, I say! Aren't there a man among you will save her? He cried in a state of increasing excitement. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, he'll ruin us! Don't believe him! The house is empty! There's nobody in there at all! Lord, Lord, interposed the old woman, alternately weeping, wringing her hands, and shaking her fist in Badger's face. "'The woman ought to know,' cried one. "'To be sure,' replied another. "'Gentlemen, gentlemen!' screamed out Mr. Badger. "'Pon my honor, pon my soul, there's a lady shut up in there, at the top of the house! Gentlemen!' 
and Mr. Badger assumed the position of an orator, inciting his hearers to do some noble deed. A lady, a lady, gentlemen, a lady should never be overlooked. She's there. I know she's there. Saw her with my own eyes. A fine woman, fine woman. Don't let her burn up. Never harm a woman. As though to corroborate Mr. Badger's statement, at that moment a shriek, a wild, piercing, heart-rending shriek, the shriek of frantic despair, burst upon the startled ears of all present. So long and loud was that appalling cry that it drowned the din of voices, the noise of rushing feet, the crackling of the flames, and the busy sound of the engine. A ladder! A ladder! vociferated Mr. Badger. The ladder was procured and fastened to the side of the house, but the flames had mounted high and were bursting from almost every window. The house tottered. To ascend the ladder would have been madness. Even the courageous and noble-hearted firemen drew back. In vain, Mr. Badger loudly harangued the crowd and pronounced the woman a fine woman, the finest woman in the world, and their country a great country. Not a creature would venture upon the perilous exploit. Jets of water fell plentifully upon the roof of the house, but the flames still mounted, and the ladder appeared worse than useless. Involuntarily, the populace drew back, expecting every minute to behold the house fall, hurling the ladder with it, and perhaps burying some of them in the ruins. It was during that period of awful, agonizing suspense that Mr. Mordaunt himself burst through the crowd with his mighty arms flinging everyone aside that imp impeded his progress. He snatched up a coil of rope and with bare head and his features distorted by fear and horror fixed his foot firmly upon the ladder, and ascended with the speed of a wild animal. The ladder scarcely reached the attic windows. Mordaunt fiercely tugged at the blinds of one of them, but they were secured within by a secret lock that he himself had invented for the purpose and would not yield. Dropping one end of the rope and holding the other in his hand, he clambered to the top of the house and disappeared through the small door that opened onto the roof. It was a fearful moment. The flames were already bursting through the blinds he had tried to force. In an instant more, the roof must fall. The crowd below held their breaths during his absence, and every eye was fixed upon the spot where he had last been visible. Just as they began to despair of his return, his head reappeared, and, with a leap, he was once more upon the scorching roof. His left arm clasped an apparently lifeless woman, and, with his right hand, he tightly grasped the rope, which he had fastened within the attic. Creeping to the edge of the tiles, he carefully suspended himself from the roof in order to reach the ladder. A suppressed murmur of dread rose from the crowd as they beheld his fearful position. Should the rope give way? Should his foot miss the bar? He and the helpless being in his arms were lost. He swung boldly round and touched the ladder. His fingers unclasped himself from the rope, and, with the rapidity of thought, he descended. 
A loud, hearty cheer greeted him as he reached the ground, and a hundred hands were stretched forth to hurry him to the opposite side of the street. Mechanically, he permitted himself to be carried along, and he had hardly reached a place of safety before, with one tremendous crash, like the peal of thunder, the house fell, and the lurid flames danced exultantly over the ruins and shot up their tall wreaths to the reddening skies. Piteous to behold was the appearance of Mr. Mordaunt, as he stood supporting himself by an iron railing. His face was blackened and scorched. The clothes were burnt from his shoulders. His feet were without shoes, his stockings badly singed, and blood flowed profusely from his lacerated hand, that had grasped the cord in his dangerous descent from the roof. One arm was still tightly twined around the unfortunate woman he had periled his life to rescue. But she was uninjured and appeared totally unconscious of her situation. The flames had not touched one tress of the long shining hair that fell in dark clouds to her knees. The white robe that fluttered about her attenuated frame was unscorched, and though her face was hueless, it was not with terror, for her eyes rested vacantly on the gaping crowd that gathered around her. She passed her thin fingers through the locks, face, and lift them back, and smiled. "'Is she mad?' whispered one. "'I suppose so. Perhaps the fright has crazed her.' Mr. Verdant caught the sound of these words, and they roused him from the lethargy into which he had fallen. Oh, a carriage! Will somebody have the goodness to procure a carriage? He gasped forth, as though in acute pain. A carriage was soon at his command, but before he could enter it, Mr. Badger caught hold of his arm and saluted the lady with a bow. How you do, your ladyship? How are you? I hope you aren't hurt. It was I, your ladyship, told the people you were there. Didn't believe me until you let them know yourself by screaming, Right, right. Always make oneself heard when one wants assistance. Mr. Badger then turned to Mr. Mordaunt. What a pickle you're in, hey? Saved her, though, didn't you? Oh, you old profligate, who'd have thought it? Who'd have thought it? Never saw your match in all America. Great country, this great country, greatest country in the world. Mr. Mordaunt extricated his arm from Mr. Badger's grasp, lifted his companion into the carriage, and with difficulty crawled in himself. To Mr. Lemmings, 8th Street, number... Make haste, coachman. What number did he say? Must keep the run of him. What number? The coachman pushed Mr. Badger aside, closed the door, and mounted the box. As he was lifting his whip, old Tabitha, who had followed her master, ran forward and tried to clamber up behind the carriage. "'I'll help you. Always help the ladies,' said Mr. Badger, gallantly coming to her assistance and seating her safely as the carriage drove away. "'There you are. Now hold on. Aren't that sublime? Ha, 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 ha. When the carriage stopped before the residence of Mr. Lemming, 
old tabitha's ludicrous appearance quickly drew around it a crowd of idlers shouts of derisive laughter mingled with hisses rose on every side the old woman when she perceived herself to be the object of this ill-timed ridicule sprang furiously from her seat and rushed into the midst of the throng and with her shrivelled arms dealt about her a succession of blows which would have turned the rabble's mirth to rage had her streaming grey locks her soiled and tattered dress flying in the wind and her begrimed face been less calculated to prolong their merriment the clamour attracted mrs lemming to the window and it was while she stood there that the coach-door opened and mr mordaunt staggered into the street apparently unable to support himself aria aria walton cried mrs lemming look here your uncle just got out of this carriage and he looks as if he had come out of the witch's cauldron and sure enough he has one of the witches along with him aria would not lose time by approaching the window but flew downstairs to receive mr mordaunt uncle good heavens what has happened to you she said in a tone of alarm as he leaned heavily on her shoulder the house is burnt to the ground do not mind me take care of her replied mr mordaunt tremulously pointing to his companion who still sat quietly in the carriage aria sprang into the coach and without questioning who or what the unfortunate woman might be led her tenderly into the house the singularity of her appearance aria attributed to the accident she had just encountered and the restlessly vacant look of those dark eyes might she thought be the effect of terror as they entered the house mr and mrs lemming joined them aria hastily explained that her uncle's house had been consumed by fire that he was injured and the lady with him much alarmed and requested permission to lead them to her chamber certainly my dear how can you ask that question replied mr lemming lean on me mr mordaunt i fear you are badly hurt but who is that woman demanded mrs lemming ungraciously she is the strangest looking creature i ever saw who is she probably some neighbor of my uncle's whispered aria whose friends may have been separated from her by the crowd or perhaps have been burnt to death her intellect seemed stunned by some sudden shock let me take her to my own chamber i suppose it can't be helped now but i don't admire taking people into my house whom i don't know answered mrs lemming i promise that she shall give you no trouble but pray send for dr chadwick immediately my uncle needs care there is not a moment to lose aria turned from mrs lemming and taking the hand of her new acquaintance conducted her to the chamber we have before described are you at all injured inquired aria kindly the strange being whom she addressed without appearing to comprehend her words looked fearfully around the room touched her long slender finger to her lip and whispered hush that her reason wandered was evident and aria could hardly retain her emotion as she perceived it will you not lie down sleep may restore you see this is my own little bed lie down and rest her words fell unheeded on the poor maniac's ears yet aria's voice seemed to have power upon her for she bent her head to listen to it 
and looked uneasy when the sound ceased. Arya gently drew her toward the bed, for she permitted herself to be guided like a child, and smoothed the pillow and said, "'You will rest well here.' "'Hush!' again warningly whispered the maniac. Arya was much enfeebled by the nature of her disease, but the energy of her will could at any time momentarily endow her with much physical strength. She stretched out her arms, and by strong effort of volition succeeded in lifting the light form of the stranger and laying her softly upon the bed. The maniac made no opposition to being placed in this recumbent position. Arya seated herself beside her, took her hand, and with a gentle motion smoothed back the long and tangled hair from her forehead. There must have been something soothing and composing in that touch, for, over the staring eyes, that looked as though they were watching intangible shapes hovering about them, the lids slowly drooped, and at length closed, the limbs relaxed, and their nervous motion was stilled. The hurried breath came more evenly from betwixt those pallid lips the sufferer slept. But how like death seemed that sleep! Surely life could find no fitting abode in that wasted form, but still lingered to take farewell of its olden tenement. The jet-black lashes that lay on her alabaster cheek and the jetty hair that clustered in masses around it gave to that still face the hue and aspect of the grave. Arya, as she gazed upon this image of death, could hardly believe that the rosy current still glided through the delicate veins that interlaced those blanched temples. How fearfully she must have suffered to become thus shadow-like, she murmured to herself, and tears of compassion fell upon the countenance over which she was bending. I feel drawn toward her, even more strongly than common pity should attract me, and why? Ah, is there not always sympathy between those who have suffered? How beautiful is even this wreck of loveliness! Certainly I have seen those features before. Are some features that resemble them? Who can she be? A little moment longer Arya sat watching the slumberer, and finding that her rest was likely to be undisturbed, stole noiselessly from the chamber and hastened to that of Mr. Mordaunt. Mr. Mordaunt was extended on the bed, partially disencumbered of his garments. The writhing of his features denoted intense suffering, yet he uttered no complaint and suppressed the groans that were struggling to escape from his lips. "'Has not the doctor arrived?' inquired Arya of Mr. Lemming. "'Not yet. We expect him every minute.' Arya glided to her uncle's side, but she dared not touch him, lest she might increase his pain. "'Dear, loved uncle, I know how dreadfully you are suffering, but you will be relieved soon.' "'Yes, very soon, and by the healer of all mortal sufferings,' groaned Mr. Mordaunt. "'Do not speak so. For my sake, do not. I should be alone in the world without you, uncle.' "'It would not be for long, my poor child,' said Mr. Mordaunt in a softened voice, and forgetful of his own pain while he scanned Arya's wan features. "'You will follow soon.' "'If God so will,' replied Arya. "'But, dear uncle, I have not told you that she, that the lady, I have left her asleep. 
terror must have deprived her of her senses, for she appeared to me to be quite deranged. Mr. Mordaunt started up in the bed. Deprived her of her senses? Who said that it was terror? Who knows anything about it? Who told you she was mad? Did she say I made her so? Oh, no, dear uncle. I only supposed her to be deranged. But her strange conduct may have been the effect of fear. Yes, it was one of fear, of horror, of remorse. She shall not say I made her mad. She has made me frantic. It was my own act that blighted her existence, and my deeds, with her united, have blighted mine. They have withered up my soul and chained it to a hell here, while it was preparing me for a hell hereafter. And now the end is coming, but no future life can have torments in store more hideous than the anguish I have endured in this. I do not fear death. I hail its approach. I hasten toward it. The worst that may come cannot surpass the past. His reason is wandering, whispered Aria to Mr. Lemming. If you could only sleep, uncle, you would be much better. If I could only sleep my last sleep, I should be better. For I should not then be upon the mental rack of suspense. I should know that the hour of retribution had come, and it would be too late to dread it. Mr. Lemming, desirous of changing the current of the suffering man's thoughts, said, You have not told us yet who this lady is. Not told you. You will know soon enough, replied Mr. Mordaunt bitterly. I would tell you now that your blood might freeze as mine does, when I remember her history, but I have not the power. He sank back, exhausted, upon the bed, and Aria made a sign to Mr. Lemming not to disturb him by further conversation. They stood in silence by his bedside until Dr. Chadwick was announced. Aria was then dismissed from the chamber. She immediately sought her own room, but... Finding its occupant still slept deeply, she returned, and seated herself upon the stairs near her uncle's door, that she might have an opportunity of speaking to Dr. Chadwick as he passed out. In about a half an hour, Mr. Lemming came out into the entry, and, observing Aria, said, "'The doctor wants more assisting in dressing your uncle's wounds. I am going for some of the servants.' "'Oh, no, I will assist,' replied Aria promptly. "'You?' No, my child, it will be a very painful operation, and I should not like to try your courage by permitting you to witness it. But who will assist so willingly, so gladly? You need not doubt my courage. Surely I can endure to see what my uncle is forced to bear. But your health will suffer less if I am employed. You must not refuse me. Mr. Lemming opposed her no longer, and they entered the room together. Aria quickly silenced the doctor's objections to her services, and, seating herself upon the bed, calmly supported the head of her uncle while the doctors dressed the terrible burns that had eaten away the flesh from his breast, shoulders, and arms. Once or twice an irrepressible groan broke from the compressed lips of Mr. Mordaunt, but Aria firmly retained her position, dampening his foreheads with some water that stood near when he looked faint, 
and when his courage was about to give way, whispering words in his ear that were more potent than any medicine could have been in restoring him. At length the operation was over, a composing draught administered to the patient, and the doctor retired, followed by Aria. "'My uncle is very seriously injured. Do you think that his life is in peril, doctor?' "'That is a question, my dear, that I usually decline in answering to friends of my patients, because it would excite them to hear it, but it will only relieve me to know the truth. I entreat you to answer my question.' "'You are a perfect heroine, my young lady, and I believe I may trust you. Your uncle's, that is, Mr. Mordaunt's state, is dangerous in the extreme. Yet if he is not attacked by fever, he may recover. I will return this evening.' Aria silently pressed the doctor's hand, and once more hastened to her chamber. As she opened the door, her first look was towards the bed, but it was vacant.' The object of her search was sitting in a corner upon the floor, rocking herself to and fro, with her arms folded on her bosom, as though they clasped something invisible to her heart. "'Hush!' said she, in a low tone. "'She sleeps.' "'Who sleeps?' softly inquired Aria, kneeling beside her. "'My own little one, my own, only child. She sleeps now, and look, how she smiles in my face. But all last night I heard her wail, the whole night through. Oh, it pierced my heart, that low, mournful wailing. I hear it so often, nothing will drown the sound. Just so she wailed when they snatched her away. Hark, do you not hear her? Is it not a piteous sound? Aria thought she had never heard a sound so piteous as that of the voice to which she was listening, but she could distinguish no other. Again the poor creature by her side commenced rocking backward and forward, folding a fancied being to her bosom, and as she rocked she sung a sweet but hurried and broken tone. Hide thee on thy mother's breast, hush that wailing cry, safely, safely thou mayst rest, none but she is nigh rest 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 hark he comes that step o oh me never lose thy clasp closer cling for we must flee now we'll escape his grasp flee 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 she ceased and sat silently gazing in her lap aria spoke to her but she made no reply how wrong I was, thought Arya, not to let Dr. Chadwick see her. When he comes this evening, I shall not forget it. Thank heaven she does not appear to suffer. End of chapter 19